Okay, in, uh, next Sunday, I will not be here. Next Sunday, I'm going to be, all this week, I'm going to be at um, theological conferences, back to back to back, Evangelical Theological uh, Society, Institute for Biblical Research, American Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature, listening to theological papers being read all day long for eight to ten hours. And I know that you all want to come with me. <laughs> I can't even get my wife to go. So <laughs> it's, uh, for me, it's a delightful time to hang out with scholars from all over the world, pastors, leaders, missionaries that are all interested in the same thing how to make sense of this wonderful book. So this is my time to go and kind of get refreshed and uh, get challenged with uh, what people are thinking, young scholars, old scholars, young pastors, older ones, missionaries of all ages. So pray for me. But next Sunday, I have a very dear friend coming, and I want to go ahead and introduce her. Her name is Rebecca Sutton. She was a student of mine at uh, Denver Seminary in the master's program. She teaches Bible at Valor. She's on the teaching, the preaching team at her church in Littleton, Centennial. And uh, her husband, uh, I knew him. He was Army Special Forces. I led him to the Lord 30 years ago in Germany. And I had the privilege of uh, marrying them. Just a very special person to me. And what she's going to do, we talked about what I'm doing in, in Exodus. And we're going to come back to that in just a second. And she's going to come and take Exodus and tie it into Romans 6. Romans 6 is kind of the... Uh, explanation of all of Exodus. You've been freed from slavery to sin. You all know the story of Exodus, uh, Israel coming out of Egypt in slavery. Well, the Old Testament to me is a very, uh, it's almost like God's children's picture book, okay? You can, you can touch the stones of the temple. You can hear the animals bleeding, um, you know, as they take them to the sacrifice. If you've never been a, around a sacrificial system, it doesn't smell very good. You could smell the animals when they kill them. And uh, it's all very real and tangible. Uh, and that lays the foundation for understanding the New Testament. So the New Testament uses all the imagery that is presented in the Old Testament but now it's presenting it in terms of spiritual reality. So the only way to understand the New Testament is to go back into the Old Testament and look at it. For example, we're a spiritual temple, aren't we? So how do we define, we don't go to temples. How do we define a temple? Do we go to a Hindu temple? I hope not. I've been to lots. Buddhist temple? I hope not. I've been to lots. Where do we go? We go back into the Old Testament and we begin to take a look at the Jewish temple and that lays the foundation for our understanding in today's world. For example, the nation of Israel had to gather three times a year for celebrations, festivals. And the rabbis tell us that the festivals, and the Bible tells us this, would go seven and eight days, dancing 24 hours a day, singing praise songs, you know? Okay, so when the world looks at us as a spiritual temple, what do they see? Do they see us? like this? Don't cross the line. Or do they see us dancing, celebrating, and having fun? What do they see? Over here, this is where the poor could come and have their needs met. Remember Leviticus two years ago? The purpose of the law was that there would be no poor among you. They could come here, have their needs met. They were supposed to be able to. Didn't happen very well. When the world looks at us, do they see us taking care of the poor? You know, when I was looking at this church and several other churches, the very first thing I looked at was not their doctrinal statement. I looked at their financials to see how much money they gave. And this church was the only church where the more money, more, 
more than 20% of the general fund went outside the church through missions, benevolence, food bank, all the local ministries that we're involved in. And uh, I can tell a lot from a church by looking at the financials. And this church grabbed my heart because this is part of being the spiritual temple to care for the poor. Over here, this is where you could go if you have a conflict with a neighbor or you want to learn about the Lord. If you had, they didn't do lawsuits. Paul says, no, go, go to your leaders and, that, and negotiate a peaceful way to reconcile it so the world can see us handling conflict well. This is where you could go is the temple. So the spiritual temple today, when the world looks at us, do they see us fighting our battles in court? Paul says, shame on you if that's the case. You should rather be wronged than take your court battles public. But this is where we should resolve things. So you can go back and forth. And so the Old Testament lays out this very visceral, this very tangible, this very, you know, you can hear things, you can see things, you can touch things. It's like a picture book to help us understand true spiritual reality. So two years ago, I argued that Leviticus, which has a lot of commands, if you look beneath the commands, then you begin to understand what God was doing in terms of holiness. So Leviticus becomes a paradigm for holiness in our entire New Testament theology. Everything that's in Leviticus is found again in the New Testament. So this time I'm arguing that Exodus is the same. It has a very, a very literal taking slaves out of bondage. But that lays, that's the paradigm, or that lays the groundwork for understanding Paul's statement. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so by studying Exodus all the way through, we begin to get a picture of what it really means to move toward Christ. And so that's captured in Romans 6 and other places, but Romans 6 is a big one because that's the one we use for baptism because that's the, if you've been baptized with Christ into his death and his life. And so Rebecca, we talked about it. She was very excited to bring Romans to you, which sets the stage for our baptism the week after that. And so Romans 6, you have been set free from slavery to sin. That's right out of Exodus. So therefore, Paul can ask the question, why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. Why do you? And so Rebecca's going to bring that to us. So we're in this whole study of Exodus, and um, we've looked at a bunch of things, and each piece of Exodus gives us a glimpse of what it really means to be free in Christ. And what does that actually look like? Today we're going to see a different one. It's a story that's known to you all. It's the uh, Egyptian army uh, crossing the Red Sea and dying. You all know the story. Moses parting the Red Sea. It's in all the movies. We're not even going to talk about that part of it because you know it so well. We're going to talk about the ancillary details that really capture a glimpse of what happens with Christ. Because there's really some very interesting and fun details in there. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the plagues. And uh, remember the plagues? God dismantled the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods. He destroyed all the gods, okay? And in the process of destroying all the gods, he destroyed the nation, took it apart, completely bankrupted it in that process. So you may remember the story of uh, Moses. He didn't want to... um, He didn't want to do this. He argued with God. No, I don't want to do this. And God says eight times, I'm the one that's going to do it, not you. And that's where we develop the principle that that freedom in Christ is learning to relax. It's not what you accomplish for Christ. That's not worth anything. It's what Christ accomplishes through you because of your faithfulness. 
And Moses, he didn't get it. He finally says, all right, all right, all right, I'll go. And then he heads out for Egypt and God tries to kill him. There's that little tiny interesting passage. God tries to kill him. Zipporah, his wife, saves his life because he had not circumcised his own children. And Genesis 17 says, if you want to belong to the covenant, you have to be circumcised. And he didn't do it. That says he didn't really believe in the covenant. And God wasn't about to let him uh, go out and lead a whole nation out if he himself didn't believe. So that's kind of the turning point. He begins to wrestle with God a little bit more after that, but not as powerful. And God says, no, you're going to do it. Actually, I'm going to do it through you. All I ask is for you to be faithful and you're going to see me do incredible things. So he watches the gods of Egypt be destroyed, absolutely crushed, and the nation bankrupted. He sees that by God and his whole perspective is going to shift and you're going to see it today. Now he's on the other side of it going, wow, what a God we serve, but he still has a nation of slaves that don't quite believe it yet. And so he's going to have to work with them given the circumstances here. So, last week we talked about Passover. That Passover is actually a celebration about, not Exodus, but freedom from death. Okay? And so when we celebrate communion, uh, I think they're over the side over here, isn't it? Yep, they're all there. So, the communion elements, this is celebrating the life we have avoided death, eternal death, because of what Christ has done. That's Passover. So today we're going to look at a very famous story, but let me start with this. Have you ever, I'm sure you have, you're human, I have, you find yourself, you're going through life and you have your plan and God jerks you left and right and takes you, we think we have our hand on the steering wheel, but we really don't. God jerks us to the left and into the right, sometimes backwards, and it's very disorienting and sometimes frustrating, we can't figure out why that's going on, right? You know what I'm talking about? I went to work at Denver Seminary. They laid me off. So then I went to work to CCU. Was there four years on faculty, and then they laid me off. I came home, sat in my closet, and cried for a couple of minutes, and finally said, okay, God, where are we going now? Denver Seminary called me and hired me right back. It's just the way it works. It's been fired. You know, I didn't understand why my first wife died, not at the time. And uh, it's just getting jerked left and right. When I was in the Navy, I was uh, in the nuclear program, you know that. I was applying for engineering college and making it a career. So um, uh, I got married in December. My commanding officer calls me in in January and says, well, guess what? You're done in the Navy. What do you mean? I'm right in the middle of applying for engineering college. And he said, yeah, but you married a terminally ill wife. The medical corps overruled us. Out you go. And I was out. That's how I ended up in Colorado to get her care. I didn't understand that didn't understand it at all. The military is good for not giving you what you want. When I finished nuclear power school, here was my dream sheet. I wanted a fast attack submarine out of Charleston, a fast attack out of New London, Connecticut, or a fleet ballistic missile submarine out of Norfolk, and I got a cruiser out of San Diego. But that's where I met my wife and got booted out of the Navy. Okay, God's steering left and right. It's no different than when I get on an airplane. Oh, guess what? You're not flying. The plane was just, the flight was canceled. Uh, how am I going to get overseas? Well, that's, where are we going, God? Where are we going? That's that God taking control. And you're going to see this today because this is actually a critical part of what it means to learn to be free, to enjoy that freedom in Christ. So, a surprise. Right off the bat, they're now out of Egypt. You know the story. They can hear the chariots behind them. 
the army marching, the dust is in the air, and they got all this water in front of them. You already know the story. But that's not the part that I want to cover because you know it so well. God leads them, and it's a surprise. This is in Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, okay, now remember, God didn't give Pharaoh a choice. His whole nation has been completely demolished, okay? And his firstborn son was killed. And he finally said, get out. I don't want anything to do with you. But God's not done yet. There's one more God to take care of. Pharaoh himself. God's destroyed all the gods of Egypt. But there's one more God. He knows Pharaoh's not done. So verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, through that, though that was short, shorter. Okay, they could have gone right up the coast road and in about 10 or 11 days they could have been in the promised land. But God instead took them south took them south. Not what they expected. God, we can just get to the promised land by going this way. No, we're going to go this way. But then he does something very interesting. He takes them up to the sea and says, no, we're not done. Let's go back. Then he takes them up to the sea again. No, no, we're still not done. He's wandering them all around the desert here. Okay, why would he do that? So the next part of this verse, here's the reason, the first reason God did not take them along the coast road If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. You see, they came out prepared to fight, but they're slaves. They have no idea how to fight. They don't know what battle is like. And God knows that, and so he's very careful with them. He doesn't lead them the shortest way, the way they want to go, because he knows what would happen. Hint, hint. Plug that into your lives. God knows far more about what's going to happen than you do. And he knows that if you go this way, it might not be good, so he'll take you this way. Okay? If he hadn't booted me out of the Navy, I probably would have made it a career. I wouldn't be here. God had other plans. I couldn't see it. It was very frustrating at the time, and I couldn't see it. And so he leads them a very different way. So then um, um, he's taking them through the desert, and he's actually taking them away from civilization. He ends up going down the Sinai Peninsula, which was one of the most deserted desert places in the world. And uh, why? Why? Well, first of all, they have the Egyptian army to deal with. They're the only superpower at that time. But he has a Canaanite army, the military. I mean, they had a military machine. And they knew all the nations. And he got them. It's not really like a timeout because that's like, that means they punished, got punished. But he moved them to a place where they were separated from all of the nations so he could talk to them and begin to teach them what it means to be the people of God. Now, we've talked about that in various sermons, Okay. So sometimes when I talk about Leviticus, I say, you know, they're sitting here in the sand. The truth is it took them about a year to a year and a half to get to the promised land. They could have gone there in 11 days and God wouldn't let them. He wandered them all over the place, okay? And one of the reasons was to entice Pharaoh because Pharaoh had not learned his lesson. You are not God. It's the last God left. You're not God. So 
that brings up a principle, a point that we need to wrestle with, you need to think through, that what happens in your life is not about you. It is partly about you. But only partly. Paul says the angels long to look and watch. Do you realize we're on a stage? We're on a heavenly stage and we're being watched by all the creatures in heaven. Revelation gives us that portrayal very clearly. It's not about you. You're just a small little piece of what God is doing. But there's a bigger war and a bigger drama being played out. And all of the angelic hosts and the creatures of heaven are paying very close attention to this. And so God is interested in that. So he has to destroy Pharaoh, the last God. Okay? Why? Verse, uh, in chapter 14, verse 4, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now remember back in chapter 2, he said, Pharaoh has already hardened his heart. I'm just going to take advantage of it. So what's going to happen? Okay? And uh, he will pursue the Israelites, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And there you see the Lord, all capitals. Remember when you see that? You could translate that. That's his personal name. Remember, none of the gods gave us the personal names. He's the only one, because now we know there were no gods, but they didn't know that. So you could translate it. All the Egyptians will know that I am the one true God, and there is no other. So he has a mission here. He's got to break down that arrogance. He's got to break down that perspective of Pharaoh on the only God left. No, it's not really true. And so Pharaoh's stuck in the corner. So look at what he says in verse 5. Uh, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officers changed, or officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done We've let the Israelites go. We've lost their services. The Israelites were the only productive part of the nation left. They're bankrupt. Every tree, every animal, everything's gone. And the one group of people that can bring them back to life has we let them slip through our fingers. And that's what prompted Pharaoh to go after them. And so... Uh, the, the Egyptians obviously didn't believe, and the Israelites didn't believe. It's sitting on Moses' shoulders, much like Hezekiah. Earlier this year, we talked about him. He's the only one that trusted God against the Assyrians. Hezekiah. Moses is the only one, but now he's ready. He has seen the incredible power and work of God and knew exactly what was happening. So uh, the Israelites are now trapped. Verse 10, chapter 14, as Pharaoh approached. So here they come, okay? They're coming. Um, let me go back and read a part that I didn't give you. In verse, in verse uh, 3, it says, uh, the Israelites were wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. They don't know where they're going. God's just leading them all over the place, and they can't figure it out, okay? Why? Why is that? And he said, it's because Pharaoh is going to think the Israelites don't know what they're doing. So we can go get them and bring them back. So now, they're stuck between a rock and a hard spot. They're at the Reed Sea, what we call, sometimes call the Red Sea. It's water. And behind them, all the chariots and the marching army. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, they looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified. Of course they were. You ever been frightened if you lose a job? 
Maybe some of you that in high school, you didn't quite get the grade you wanted and have to repeat a class. That's me. I should have never graduated from high school. I didn't meet the requirements, didn't have the GPA, didn't take the right classes, but it was the end of the Vietnam War and they were giving granting waivers and I slipped through their fingers and got out. Shouldn't have. Okay? But in the process, it destroyed whatever little confidence I had as a teenager. You know? Failing English, failing physics, failing chemistry, getting D in algebra, getting Ds in geometry. Disorienting. Frustrating. They're wandering all over the desert and now they see the Egyptians and there's no place to go. Water, desert, desert, chariots. You see it? They're stuck. They were terrified. So they cried out to the Lord, but they said to Moses, that's pretty wise there. Okay. Was it because, I love this, but was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? I just love how dramatic they become when they start complaining. (laughs) What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? It goes on, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They don't like what God has done. You've been there, haven't you? I don't like the way God... I didn't like it when God took my wife. I didn't like it when I got fired. I didn't like it when I got laid off. I didn't like any of those things. And yet, God had control. I now realize I thought my hand had my hand on the steering wheel. I didn't. Left, right. Let's hit the brakes. Left, no, let's go this way. It happens all the time when I travel. Oh, your plane's not going to go. Okay, God, where are we going? So... They were trapped. They still did not believe, but Moses did. He did. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. I've not counted this myself, but I've read several people that said this is in the top two of commands that is repeated the most throughout the Bible. We're going to see it throughout Exodus. Do not be afraid. That's what he's saying to the people. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. Okay? Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Do you believe that? By the time CC laid me off, I had matured enough in my faith. I cried because I didn't like it. Each step of the way, I thought this was my career. Well, maybe this is my career. Maybe this is my career. You know what? It only took a few minutes of tears before it turned to, okay, God, where are we going now? Be still. The first time my faith was really tested, I was an auditor for XL Energy, young auditor, young in the Lord. And um, I, I was transferred to auditing and uh, I was a new auditor. And so they put me under another auditor who was senior to me. And I went out on the site and I'm reading through my assignment was that they'd give me all this training, read through all the audit papers. And as I was reading through the audit papers, I realized that the auditor above me had really left a lot of holes. So I started filling in, just writing in stuff to make the papers whole and complete. Didn't say anything to anybody. So one day I went back to the office to check my mail. And in our office, we have all of these, uh, you know, these uh, what do you, kind of whatever you call these walls about this tall, you know. And there's 18 auditors, and you, can turn, you learn to tune out white noise, right? But you can't tune out your nose, my, your name. <laughs> so I'm sitting at my desk looking through my mail, and I hear my name. Well, he's on the other side of this partition, 
telling my supervisor how terrible of an auditor I am and he wants her to get rid of me and go give him another one that's good. Well, I was ready to jump over and strangle the guy because here I am doing everything I can to help him, make him look good. And I sat there and as a young theologian and I thought, okay, God, I didn't quite think of this verse. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still, but there's a lot of other verses like this that came to mind. And I said, okay, Lord, you're going to have to defend my integrity. So I got up and left. To this day, they don't know I was there. That afternoon, my boss calls me, supervisor, and she says, do you think you can finish this audit on your own? Uh, I'm pretty new at this. She goes, I think you can do it. I'll be out tomorrow to help you. And I said, what happened to the guy over me? She goes, I fired him. She saw through it. I had no idea she'd even been reading what I was writing. And God protected me. Do not be afraid. That's, we're going to see that from here on out. Do not be afraid. When God takes that steering wheel and jerks it to the left or jerks it to the right, all you have to do, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Do you have that kind of confidence in the Lord? That's pretty impressive. You see, going backward was for their protection. They just couldn't see it. Because Pharaoh was still around. And he was going to pursue them wherever they went. And they had to learn to trust him and not Pharaoh. We can't always see why God does what he does. But just like Job at the very end, when God said, Job, would you really annul my decision, my judgment? What happened to you was my decision. Remember Job's response? I'm sorry, Lord. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. You are part of a much bigger drama, war, cosmic battle being played out. And yes, God is using you for your own good, but also for the good of the bigger kingdom. You just can't see it. They couldn't see it. So, it's only when we look backward that we can begin to see clearly. A lot of work has been done looking at the development of leaders throughout the Bible, and there's a, pa- a pattern that appears early in your Christian walk when you're young and you want to have the greatest impact for the Lord, the Lord puts the brakes on because he has to do a lot of work in here. You have to learn to trust him, not you. Okay? And then as you begin to mature, then he slowly begins to use you more and more as you walk faithfully. Not because you've done it, because he's doing it. And as you get toward the end of your career, it's no longer important what you accomplish. It becomes more important what the Lord does through you. So you can see it looking backward, and they have to learn this. So then, one more thing. Moses, when he gets to the end, he's going to sing a song. I love, I didn't put this in here, but uh, the Lord said, Moses says, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Everybody's grumbling, complaining. The Egyptians are back there. We got all this water. And the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? You got a staff, don't you? Just touch the water. I wonder what it's like for Moses to walk up to the water and go, I can't wait to get there and ask him. I got a million questions I'm storing up for all the people that didn't, they didn't give me everything I needed. Split the waters. What was that like? Why are you crying out to me? He says, you need every, you have everything you need. Have everything you need. So then in chapter 15, he writes a song and he leads Israel through the song. And it's one of the most fascinating songs that there is. 
okay? The song of Moses or the song of the sea. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read the first three verses. Part one, God is my savior. Think about where he was just a very short period of time. I'm not good enough. Don't use me. Do use somebody else. I will sing to the Lord, and there it is, to the one true living God. For he is highly exalted, both horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord, the one true living God, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Isaiah goes on and takes this and said, he is going to fight your battles for you. He's going to defend you. The very first thing Moses says, he's swung all the way to the other side. God is my Savior. And then the whole middle section, part two, we're not going to read it, but we're going to read one verse that stands out. Verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, the one true living God? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. All the way through here, it's now not, I'm not good enough. It's now you are the one true God. You are good enough. See how he's come through this transition now? And now he's ready to lead them. The final section, part three, he's a God of loving kindness. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. Okay, that word occurs from here on out, all throughout the Old Testament. It's a unique word. It's not in any other literature outside the Bible. They had to make up a word to describe a one true God who made a promise and he's going to keep it. Most of your translations use the word loving kindness. I hardly ever give you Greek and Hebrew words, but this one's really fun. It's a rough H, chesed. That occurs everywhere. God has so committed himself to us that he will, he will fulfill his promise. Nothing can stop it, not even your sin. That's why Paul can say, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. It is because of your unfailing love, your commitment that you made to us. It's because of that that you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. What's the holy dwelling? It's wherever God decides to live. It's a burning bush. It's a a temple in Jerusalem until Ezekiel 10. It's Jesus. It's in you. It was a promised land. That's where God chose to dwell. Wherever God is, that's holy. So I'm going to leave you with this question. Do you really believe? Looking backward, do you believe it? When God takes a steering wheel and jerks you left and right, do you believe it? You willing to trust? You have nothing to fear. He is your warrior God. He will fight for you. He will defend you. When you go backwards, it's for your good. When you get jerked left or right, it's because you're doing something you can't see. Sometimes you can see it. Father, thank you for your goodness. We are grateful. And we just love the way you lead us, even if we don't understand it. It is disorienting. It's uh, sometimes frustrating, troubling. Lord, help us to trust you in those times. 
Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.